This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Stu Friedman. Workaholic. Is that you? Is that me? Welcome to Work and Life, a conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life. And of course, work relates to the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, who you are as a person, your mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and our leadership program. I'm so glad to have you with me right now. Um, we're going to talk about workaholism uh, tonight and give you some good ideas for what you can do about that in your world, in yourself perhaps, perhaps in your family. Are, are you expected to put in long hours at your work or do you put that pressure on yourself because you think it will help you advance in your career? Maybe you just prefer working to dealing with other you know, problems that you're having at home. A lot of people escape to work, to avoid things that they would otherwise have to confront in their personal lives. These are all forms of workaholism. And my guest tonight is going to talk with me about what she has discovered from her particular perch about uh, overworking and how it ultimately makes us less productive. The time off is important. And that millennials, despite their Very bad reputation in the world. Maybe you are one of those millennials who thinks, are you kidding me? I work as much harder than my parents did. What is all this nonsense about millennials being, well, self-indulgent and lazy and et cetera? Well, they're actually some of the worst workaholics that we've ever seen. So I am delighted to, to be welcoming to Work and Life, Sarah Green Carmichael. But before we get rolling, just a couple of things I want to say about Sarah. She is a senior editor at the Harvard Business Review. And indeed, she has been my editor uh, at hbr.org for like a long time. I I think like 2009, perhaps. And she's the host of the HBR IdeaCast, where she has interviewed me a couple of times. And Many, many, many other people. She's incredibly good uh, as an interviewer. So this is perhaps going to be a slightly unusual circumstance for her tonight where I'm leading the interview. During her tenure as host, the the HBR IdeaCast has been recognized by the Webby Awards, the National Magazine Awards, the Online Radio Awards, and the Digiday Awards. And in addition to hosting the podcast... She She's an editor, so she's regularly editing articles at hbr.org. That site has won the Webby Award for Best Business Website for the last two years in a row. Sarah Green Carmichael is a regular speaker and moderator at conferences like, the, like South by Southwest, where we did a panel together a couple years ago called Man Up. Maybe we'll get to talk about that a bit at the Drucker Forum at Thinkers 50, Prior to joining HBR, she was a sports writer. She taught middle school students 
That's how she learned how to deal with all the writers at HBR.org. <laughs> and and she worked as a researcher for uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Ellen Goodman. Her writing has been featured in many magazines and, and, and periodicals, Boston Magazine, the Boston Globe, uh, Politico, editor and publisher, Reader's Digest, and others. She graduated magna cum laude from Brown University, uh, and I consider her a friend and just one of the wonderful people in the world, pride of New England, Sarah Green Carmichael. Welcome to Work and Life. Wow, Stu, that was quite an introduction. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's great to have you here. So you've you've been you know really in the uh, in, in an unusual and and a special place uh, you know these this last decade or so as an editor. At HBR.org, you see a lot of all the current thinking of the, of uh, people who are writing and trying to change the world uh, in the in the world of business and management. And there were so many things that we could talk about, but I thought uh, that we both have an interest in um, well a number of topics, but in particular this issue of workaholism. So let's so the many sources of uh, insight and, and wisdom you've got about this, uh, I, I want to I mm-hmm. explore this topic with you. You've been writing, too, about overwork and burnout, particularly um, among millennial workers. Uh, according to a new sur- survey by Project Time Off and GFK, millennials are actually more likely to see themselves proudly as work martyrs than older workers and less likely to use all their vacation time. So why... Why are millennials placing such a uh, an emphasis on work martyrdom? Yeah, so I think um, there's a few things going into this. And just so we sort of know what we're talking about, work martyrdom is measured by statements like, no one else at my company can do the work while I'm away. I want to show complete dedication. I mm-hmm. don't want people to think I'm replaceable or I feel guilty for using my paid time off. So mm-hmm. um, I think some part of the reason that millennials may feel this way in part is because of the kind of economy that they've been thrust into. Um, If you have student loan debt and it was really hard to find a job, you're going to be really worried about losing that job. Hmm. Um, So you think the student loan crisis is is one of the drivers for work martyrdom among young people? For sure. For sure. Hmm. Um, Are you still paying your student loans? I am not. I, I, I am I am very fortunate, um, mm-hmm. but I know that, that I'm lucky to be in that position. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's also people don't, um, I think a lot of older workers maybe don't realize how hard it is today to get that first job or to get one of those early entry-level jobs. I mean, there are literally hundreds of applications for every entry-level job. And I have talked to numerous people in their early 20s who say, like, I keep applying for jobs, I keep being a finalist for jobs, and I just can't get a job offer. Hmm. Um, so I think that's a that's a big piece of it too. Um, so that's one factor. I think the other factor is technology. Millennials are really comfortable with technology in a way that older generations aren't, and are sort sure. of used to being always on and multitasking. And mm-hmm. so it's easy to sort of take that into the workplace and sort of be always on your work email or on Slack. Um, and I think also millennials are, in some surveys, more interested in finding meaning in their work than older generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you place so much emotional weight on your job, you really expect a lot out of it, too. So I think there's an emotional connection that's also probably happening there. Yeah, I've certainly observed that. You know, I did a study a couple of years ago um, that we actually published at HBR.org, some pieces about where that, sh- that compared the class of 1992 to the class of 2012 at Wharton and um, 
taken at, at 20 years apart, uh, uh, hundreds of questions of hundreds of people graduating in 1992 and then 20 years later. And among the, the, the many differences uh, was the one that's been widely observed, this greater sense of meaning uh, and purpose, uh, perhaps driven by the you know, the, the fractured, broken world that we live in and a greater, you know, a sense of pressure to try to fix it and do something about it. So that, those are many intense pressures. So what uh, that, that lead to a sense of, um, well, what do you call it? Overwork? Work martyrdom? What's the best term to describe how much of the mental energy and attention young people are playing or paying to work? I think if I had to pick one phrase, it might be work obsession. Because mm-hmm. to me, that captures the kind of emotional uh, connection and intensity. And also, it, it doesn't quite put so much emphasis on hours. Because I think someone can work long hours and have a very healthy emotional relationship to work. Mm-hmm. And someone can work really hard to limit their hours to 40 hours a week in the office, but still have a really unhealthy relationship with their work and sort of think about it all the time and obsess over it too much. So it's not so much about time then. I think I think time is part of it, but I think the bigger issue is this kind of emotional connection to work and the work obsession and the kind of obsessive passion that someone can have uh, for just one part of their life. Mm-hmm. So... <clears throat> So is this harmful, do you think, this, this obsession that uh, especially young people seem to have with their work? I do, and I, I think it hasn't always been easy for me to come to that conclusion, but this mm. is something that um, I'm just seeing in my role as an editor at HBR, more and more research on the health effects mm-hmm. of long hours, but also the psychological effects of being too obsessed with, with your work. Um, and it, I think it would be similar if you were too obsessed with any one part of your life, right? It's not that there's something inherently wrong about mm-hmm. obsessing over work. There's just something wrong about being obsessive. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but but you're you're concluding that um, that these conditions uh, that that are particular to this generation, the, the tight labor market, the advent of the digital age, the uh, the need to feel a sense of deep connection, you know, uh, psychologically, philosophically with one's work tends to promote obsession with work. Yeah, and I think we really have come to valorize it as a society. You know, Mm. there's a lot of advertising now around, um, you know, the tech industry about how you want to be a doer and, uh, you know, you want to work hard and have sleepless nights and go into work and crush it, you know, whatever that means. (laughs) <laughs> um, and we've sort of valor- I mean stomping on it until <laughs> yeah. it is eliminated crush right, right. <laughs> so I think we really have talked about sort of workaholism in a way that glorifies it as mm. if you're some kind of work ninja when really like you're sitting at a laptop let's be clear um, and that can be really important but it doesn't mean that you are actually a hero in some way especially if it's coming at the cost of your own sort of psychological, and even physical health. Now, you're, we're speaking here, like, at your laptop. That, that's only, like, some segment of uh, the true. people who are working in the yeah. knowledge economy. There are many people, many people listening who work in manufacturing or in research labs or, uh, you know, in hospitals, uh, all different kinds of settings where it's not just about you and your laptop and the world through that. That's definitely true. I do want to add, though, that because we're so obsessed with the tech industry in particular in America, mm-hmm. I think that part of the 
job that an elite does in a society is setting norms and modeling behavior. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I think it it, it is really important to Mm -hmm. sort of talk about how this affects people at different um, socioeconomic strata, but it, it is also, I think, something about the way we valorize sort of people who stay up and code all night, whether or not that is the work we do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because it does set a kind of model uh, for what is aspirational for many people in society. And yeah, exactly. Uh, where a lot of uh, attention in the educational world is, is being focused. We need people who can program. We need people who are coders. We need everyone in STEM. We need to get more women in STEM. STEM, 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 STEM. It's all about... Uh, yes, preparing people for the world of technology, which of course is you know crucial and very very important if we're going to compete on the world stage. But um, <clears throat> so what what happens in the world of technology then really does have a broader impact than just that industry. Mm-hmm. I, t- I totally agree, and we're we're, we're seeing that also in uh, in policies about parental leave, where you know the major tech companies are falling over each other. You know, as to try to you know compete with who's got the best parental leave policy. Right, so right, and that—that uh, that is something I would be happy to see trickle down to other non-tech companies. Well, yes, I, I have spoken about it that way, and and I uh, I think we all would like to see that. So, what's your take on that, uh, and what people are writing about and commenting on it at HBR.org with respect to technology and parental leave? So, this is one of those areas where we publish a lot of best practices on what companies should do. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of companies don't seem to be doing them. So it's kind of like, for me, it's one of those tricky things where I think I'm just going to keep running the same articles until every company has a good parental leave policy. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, I think that this is an area where, you know, the United States is alone among nations, uh, comparable nations in the world, and not having any sort of national guidance on yes. this issue uh, in terms of paid leave. And I think, and there's also, even when you talk about FMLA, there's a lot of companies where they're small enough that that is actually not guaranteed. That's or the Family and Medical eligible. Leave Act, which is the first uh, executive order that Bill Clinton signed when he was president. Yeah. And has been renewed. So, yeah, this is really a challenge, and I think it really mm-hmm. goes to the heart of some of this work-life stuff because it's really when people are new parents, right, you're setting new habits and establishing new norms and establishing new dynamics as a family, and if you don't have an equitable leave policy, that really sets up, I think, a harmful expectation from the very beginning. Yes, indeed. And as you can imagine, Sarah, we talk a lot about that issue on this show. Uh, Let let me remind listeners, uh, you are listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm talking with Sarah Green Carmichael, who's senior editor at the Harvard Business Review and host of the HBR IdeaCast. And if you've got a question about what we're talking about here, workaholism, workaholism in millennials, work obsession, and what we can do about it in the second half of the show, coming up in about 15 minutes, I'll be taking your calls at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Are you a workaholic? Are you obsessed with work? Do you know people who are? Is that a good thing? Or is it creating problems for you? So... Sarah, let's let's continue on on work martyrdom or or, or obsession and and what it means for parents. Um, so, what are you saying? Uh, what's what are the the hot issues with respect to um, workaholism and being a parent uh, that you are reading about, editing, and people are commenting on? So, I think that 
the issue with parents, I think, is slightly different than the issue we were talking about with mm-hmm. sort of young millennials, if you sort of take those groups exclusively, because, of course, a lot of millennials are parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, so I think the challenge for parents really is a time crunch challenge. You know, if part of what we were talking about with millennials is, well, it's not strictly the amount of time they're spending. It can just be kind of this emotional attachment to work. I think with with parents, it often really comes down to a kind of math equation. There just are not enough hours in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what worries me is that so much of the dialogue I see around parenting and making workplaces more parent-friendly is around flex time and saying, like, well, it's okay to leave at 5, like, as long as you check back in later. It's like, well, mm. maybe people shouldn't have to check back in later. Maybe working 9 to 5 should be enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we, we did a show not too long ago with Jason Freed, the CEO of, of Basecamp, who's, uh, who is quite rigorous about maintaining those work boundaries for his company, uh, and it's... Uh, it's, it has a, a powerful impact on their their performance, in addition to the health of uh, the people in their organization and and their families and their communities. Uh, but it's rare, right? Mm-hmm. So so that's an interesting uh, spin on the flex time uh, concept that it is somehow an insidious means of creating uh, you know persistently high work demands. It's just that you can choose when to. And to have them, but you're still going to need them. Yeah, I think, you know, there have been some different well-intentioned attempts to fix this issue, and I feel like a little bit, it's, it's a little bit like a game of whack-a-mole, right? Because you're like, oh, schedules are inflexible, that's a problem. Let's have flexibility. You're like, oh, now we've just created an always-on culture. Um, so then you're like, well, we'll have a results-only work environment, and then, you know, other problems crop up in response to that that you hadn't anticipated. So I realize that this is, like, kind of a moving target and a really complicated issue to solve, but I think that the fundamental, um, I think, underlying assumption that we have to really question is, like, what what is the purpose of a human life? Like, why are we here? You know, we are not homo economicus, like, people here just to make money. Like, we are here to be human beings and, like, thinking thoughtful, well-rounded people and work is a, in a really important part of that, I think, but it's it's not the only part, and maybe not even the primary part. Indeed, uh, and so so you're suggesting that advice from oh I don't know people who would suggest you lean in more. Do you think that's counter to the argument you just made? I think it really depends on. I, I think that's a choice people need to kind of make for themselves. But I do think that, you know, some of the research we've published, and I, I'm thinking specifically of Aaron Reed, um, mm-hmm. um, did some really good research on how many people actually work 80 hours a week. And mm-hmm. she found that a lot of men just pretend to lean in. They pretend to work 80 hours a week. They don't actually. And women in her survey were much more honest about with and transparent with their companies and their bosses and their coworkers about when they were working and when they were taking personal time. And I, I would like to work in an organization and in a world where we can all be honest and transparent, but I recognize that's also not the world a lot of us live in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you know, like you could lean in or you could just pretend to lean in, and it probably would have the hmm. same effect. Hmm. <laughs> I, I don't recall what Erin found about why it was that women were more, more honest. Do you? I don't think her study specifically found a reason, but mm. there have been other studies that show that women just tend to be more ethical at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and another way of looking at it is that women might be more naive. Women think that <laughs> it's the right thing to be honest. 
Uh, and it could be that in a capitalist system, maybe it's not. So are you seeing people writing, uh, commenting about, uh, I mean, this is certainly, you're preaching to the choir here and, and many of our <laughs> listeners with respect to, you know, questioning one's core values and, and purpose and meaning in life and, and really trying to align your actions with your values. That's, that's you know, what I go after every day with students and clients and uh, and and they're really you know the people the many people that I encounter throughout the world are hungry for uh, the you know the ideas and tools that that um, that I talk about and that others do that really help them address that very question that you raised what is my purpose here and how how does work fit in that so. What is what is your take if you just look at sort of the macro level trends and how people are thinking and talking and acting about that issue? Do you see that the pendulum is going to swing uh, and that people will start to be and companies will start to support the notion of a more contained work experience to enable uh, the enrichment uh, that other parts of life bring? So I think that. I- I am sorry to be a Debbie Downer. I don't see a pendulum swinging. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do see individual people learning how to take the tools that can help them set better boundaries or find more balance. I see individual people taking action with those kinds of things in ways that help them. Mm-hmm. And so I think there can be really a grassroots effort to get your own life under control, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. I think if you're a manager of people, you have an enormous opportunity to help scale that. And I think if you're a CEO like Jason Fried, who you mentioned earlier, um, you have a really great opportunity to do that in your company. Uh, and I think his example and the research we have shows that you will not sacrifice performance if you do that. In fact, you will see people coming up with more creative ideas and being sort of bringing better versions of themselves to the office if, if you give them the kind of work-life balance that they need. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, I've, I've studied this, this problem directly and indeed found that when you help people to discover what they really care about and then make changes in their lives to better align what they care about with what they do every day and, and in ways that, that satisfy the interests of people not just at work but in other parts of their lives, they end up making adjustments to their lives that have fewer hours devoted to work, more to the other parts of their lives, and they perform better at work. And I think what's really important about your approach, Stu, is that it starts with experiments. And I think for a lot of Mm -hmm. people who are emotionally attached to their work, the idea of pulling back is frightening, right? Yes. Um, And a lot of managers would find it frightening if one of their star people is like, I want to pull back. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that experimental sort of try it and see how it works approach is a really, really good one. Well, and to approach it with, you know, the intent to make things better. Mm -hmm. I I can scale back here, uh, you know, contain you know, the, the obsession in ways that will ultimately produce better value for this business. And, and let's, let's try that and see if that works uh, because I'll be less distracted or more satisfied in the other parts of my life or, you know, healthier or just less of an asshole you know, <laughs> because I'm exercising or something like that. Uh, and, you know, we see that. And here I'm just quoting my good friend uh, Bob Sutton, uh, who was on the show recently, who's written the amazing uh, the Asshole Survival Guide, a follow to the No Asshole Rule, which uh, is just a required required reading for everyone who listens to this show. So so what is to be done? What, what do you see as some of the bright ideas on the horizon in terms of, especially parents, if we could stay on that, because as you know, I'm working on this new project about parents. Um, and, you know... I, 
What do you think, what are you hearing, what are people writing about with respect to being available as a parent, not just in terms of the time crunch, but the quality of the attention that parents can bring to their kids, given the work that they do? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the saddest studies I came across recently uh, was a study that was of parents at Disney World, and they wanted to see where parents' and kids' attention was focused Mm-hmm. when they were at Disney World. And what the researchers found was that the kids only wanted to interact with their parents' phones because that's what the parents were interacting with. Wow. And so to me, the lesson there is like, no matter what you're doing with your kids, just like put your phone down. You know, we don't realize often how much we're looking at those phones or, or how rude we're being to the other people we're with mm-hmm. when we're always on them. Um, but so that would just be one really simple thing. Uh, just, you know, Leave the phone somewhere else. It's simple, powerful, but you know the the question I have about that is you know for the digital natives, uh, you know who are you know increasingly coming to to dominate the 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 you know entrance to the labor force, where the you know the norm is you know continual constant engagement you know with the digital stream. How do you help them to see that that's harmful, especially? especially as they become parents? Well, I think, so, a couple things. One is that if you are a parent today raising kids, you have an opportunity to inculcate values in those children. They might not listen to you when they're teenagers, but you can try. (laughs) Um, And so you can sort of help shape what the norms of the next generation are going to be. I also Mm -hmm. think, you know, I have hope. Like, I think that my people my age, I'm in my mid-30s, we're the kind of maybe worst digital people because we grew up without it and now we have it. And we're sort of obsessed with it. Hmm. Whereas I think I see, you know, kids today in high school have no problem leaving their phones in the other room, actually. And there are hmm. schools where it's like a status symbol at this high school to walk around with your phone in airplane mode. So I think like... Really? Yes. Yes. So yeah. I think like younger kids get it. And I think it's us in the middle who like didn't have this technology and didn't grow up with it who really struggle the most. So you're saying the cool thing now is to be, is to be offline? I mean, sample size of one high school, but yeah. <laughs> so you think we're going to see that as as part of a trend, Sarah? I I would love to. I mean, I, mm-hmm. it might drive their parents a little crazy because often what is pushing that connection is the idea of the digital umbilical cord where, like, parents want to have a way to get in touch with their kids all the time. Yes, um, of course. I also think parents really have to think about you know, if they're over-scheduling their children with a million activities, what is the signal that they are sending about the value of downtime and balance? Um, mm-hmm. And I know it's like an arms race to get your kid into college, and every kid has to do like oboe and karate and fencing and judo and piano and, mm-hmm. you know, a million activities. But I think part of the reason we see millennials today more likely to identify as work martyrs in surveys is because they have been raised with this sort of plethora of activities, and they don't know what it's like to just sort of sit down and do nothing. I did a lot of that as, a, as an aimless youth, um, and, you know, look where it got me. But, yes, <laughs> no, really, it's, it's, it's true. The lost art of just contemplation and walk, going for a walk uh, is, is – uh, hmm. so our, our – I'm going to ask you a personal question here, mm-hmm. Sarah, and you can just tell me to, you know, that's none of your business, too. I can't believe you're asking me that. But do you have plans to have children at some point in your life? So here's the thing. I would like to. I'm happy to answer that question. Okay. Um, I also think it's really important for people without children to have work-life balance. And I do think that sometimes 
when we talk about work-family conflict, we just leave out people who don't have kids. And I, I think there should be ways that you can spend your time that are not raising kids and not working that are considered valuable and worth defending. Well, of course, of course. No, when I started the Work-Life Integration Project at, at the Wharton School in 1991, it wasn't the Work-Family Project. Right. It was the Work-Life. And, and, the, and the explicit intent there was to, dem- you know, was to declare this is not just about parents and kids, for sure, right. for sure. I think since I think what I what I worry about is a lot of the articles I see coming across my desk mm-hmm. are all like work family, work family, work family, and I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, what about other like what about hobbies? Remember hobbies? Of course. So. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, uh, that's true. That uh, you know, and and I think increasingly true as fewer and fewer people indeed choose to uh, to become parents in this world. Did my mother make you ask me about that? <laughs> I have never met your mother, Sarah. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, why is she that offline? Is she exerting some undue pressure on you? She is not, not directly, not to my face. <laughs> Just going through she, professors. She's maybe. working the system. Okay, yeah. well. No, she, she raised an amazing person. Uh, Sarah, we, we have to bring this to a close here. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about the remarkable body of work that you are producing? Thank you. Well, so we have a lot of great resources at hbr.org. And, um, you know, whether your, your challenge is setting boundaries or finding balance or just emotionally disconnecting from your work in a healthy way, I'd like to think that hbr.org has some resources to help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, that's easily found online. Um, anything else you want to say just in closing here about like uh, advice you might have for uh, millennials as they seek a more meaningful, purposeful world and life? That's a really good question. Um, I will try to be brief because I know we're winding down. I think, you know, I think you do you, be your best self, you know, realize when you're putting pressure on yourself versus legitimate external pressure. Um, And don't be afraid to, like, take a walk in the woods without your earbuds in. That's great advice. (laughs) Sarah, you, you are the best editor. I so much appreciate the work that you do for me personally and now for the world of business ideas on, on, a, on a broad scale. I uh, really appreciate you taking some time to, to speak with us tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Stu. All right. Don't go away, folks. When we come back in a couple minutes, uh, I'm going to be taking your calls, 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. The issue is work overload, work martyrdom, work obsession. Uh, How do you turn it off? How do you turn it off in ways that actually make your work more productive in addition to making the rest of your life uh, sane, if not uh, enriching and meaningful? So that's the question. I'd love to hear your stories about how you've done that, how you've managed to contain your work obsession or not. If you want some advice on that, It's a topic I know something about. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Stay with us. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.